half the time I'm agnostic and the other half I'm a witch. How's that? So some kind of blend. I believe in everything. I believe in nothing. You know, whatever's going to work for me and get me through this day. Spell work is essentially a way of raising energy and also channeling your own energy towards a specific purpose. These are the voices of women at New York City's oldest occult store, Enchantments. We went to the store and asked people why they were there, to reveal their witchy goals, and to tell us a little bit about their spiritual beliefs. It's not a difference, but Wicca is essentially one sect of witchcraft. I believe in science as much as I believe in nature, and I'm very big on, uh, you know, as above, so below. You know, you don't just do a magic spell and put the energy out there. You physically work with your hands and you move your feet towards where you want to be. I, I was always obsessed with the alchemy of the real world and magic. Not that you would only use it for results in the real world, but that the both are here for a reason. You're not just going to go to a mountain and try to meditate yourself away from reality. Nobody wants to feel powerless or helpless or, you know, and, and if there's a way that you can not feel uncomfortable in your own skin, like, don't you want to seek it out and try? I'm Women of the Hour, and this is Lena Dunham. I fucked up. <laughs> Today on the show, we're talking about faith and spirituality, words that can be as broadly or narrowly defined as we like. Where's Oprah when we need her? I've had so much more than a good time. It's meant so much more to me. But I don't know if I'll ever fit inside who you want me to be. As always, this show is brought to you by the sensual and remarkable MailChimp. Do you have a newsletter? You should. They're so fun and you can have people listen to all your crazy ideas. MailChimp can help. Over 14 million people use MailChimp. My mother is a Jew. My father is Protestant by birth with a psychedelic bent by choice. But in my house, we worshipped at the altar of the healer. Whether it was Heidi B. Fleiss, yup, real name, she had to add that B for a reason, the chiropractor who handled my childhood migraines, or the nutritionist who tested for food allergies by placing a lump of crystal on my chest and flexing my leg, my parents, my mother specifically, had no issue trusting the dark arts. Sure, there were pediatricians, therapists, ear, nose, and throat doctors, but an almost holy place was kept in our collective family heart for meditation teachers, astrologers, psychics, and people who concocted potions that tasted like dirt and Windex mixed together, drunk every morning in a small juice glass. I should say that my parents always kept me healthy. No Christian scientist insanity here. I wasn't denied antibiotics or vaccines or the spoils of Western medicine. But the opinion of someone in touch with the astral plane was certainly very valued. Even my father, skeptical the way that wasps born to martini-swilling businessmen are skeptical, was willing to hold off on a real estate deal if our family astrologer, Maria Napoli, deemed it dangerous. When my career first began, I came to Los Angeles by myself. I couldn't drive. I was 24 and had been living with my parents for the last two years in a space we called my bedroom but was actually a windowless closet. My father woke me up every morning and my mother brought me home leftovers every night. Now, sleeping alone in a freezing house in the hills, which I'd been warned was, in quotes, on the verge of collapse, so don't go on the deck or anything, 
I felt a kind of loneliness and fear I thought was reserved for hikers who had gotten lost in the woods. Now, if you've spent time in L.A., you'll know that every block has at least one donut shop and also a walk-in psychic. Soulmate specialist, past life readings, tarot for success. These neon signs are everywhere, lighting up empty boulevards at night. One afternoon, desperate, I wandered into a small place on La Cienega, thick with Persian rugs and shiny purple curtains, a crystal ball lava lamp hybrid plugged into the wall. A woman emerged from the back with her young son. He wore a Superman t-shirt. She looked like Snooky in a turban. She must have read the desperation on my face. Oh, honey, sit down, she said. Over the next hour, she told me that the man I was with, a boy, really, one who regularly said I dressed like a slutty nun and not in a fun way, was one I needed to hold on to no matter what. She said I was infertile. She said a brown-haired woman at work wished me ill. And she said she could cure all of this for a sum total of $300 cash. I rushed to the nearest ATM, flushed and ashamed. I didn't believe, but I also couldn't risk not believing. Back in her lair, she anointed me with holy water and tapped my head with a spirit wand. She gave me a tea bag I'm pretty sure was just celestial seasonings and a small bag of bath salts. Drink this as you sit in the bath for an hour. You may see dark liquid pour out of you. Those are the curses leaving. In the tub that night, I felt like a Nancy Myers divorcee and an idiot. $300 poorer, my family across the country, my boyfriend, someone who had made it clear my success sickened him, I wept. It felt nice. The next day she texted, yes, I gave that witch my phone number, to ask when I'd be in for the final steps of my curse lifting. I said I'd try for next week and then planned on never contacting her again. For the next few months, she'd occasionally text, I'm worried about you. You need help. I can feel the dark energy. I did need help, just not hers. A few months later, I had a minor breakdown, the kind that comes with increased responsibility and decreased self-love, and I started Lexapro. That seemed to lift the curse quite nicely. It took me a long time to unpack the essential appeal of healers, but I think I get it now. Doing it for yourself, diet, exercise, the kind of therapy that forces you to examine your own actions, that's hard. It's work, it's thorough, and it's exhausting. It feels so much better to be told who you are, what you are, and that soon, if you just relax and let it happen, it will all be different. A crystal in hand, vibes being tweaked by someone in touch with a larger web of energy is a great way to give up accountability and embrace victimhood. It feels cozy and safe, like a heating pad or Class C drugs. It feels like nothing is, or ever has been, your fault. But guess what? Change, like everything else worth having, is hard. It hurts. It's a climb to the top of a mountain where you aren't even guaranteed a good view. But it's what we're here for, so I guess that's my religion. We're starting off today talking to my amazing friend and psychic, Terry Ayacuzo. Well, as you can hear from that last story, I've seen a lot of hacks. Terry has a gift that cannot be denied. She's predicted my relationship with my boyfriend, a variety of work projects, and even helped my mom find some lost art. Anyway, Terry's a remarkable person, and I'm lucky to be speaking to her. She is going to be talking to us from her brother Frank's uh, magical spirit house on Mulberry Street. He's a psychic, too. Does the name Joni Mitchell ring a bell for you? Because that's who he was predicting things for. Hi, Terry. Hi, how are you? Firstly, I just want to say this episode, which is religion and spirituality, would not be anything without you because I realized 
as I was talking, I was like, my real relationship to sort of spirituality and looking at the universe as a bigger picture has really come from conversations that I've had with you. And I feel like that's the case for everyone in my family. I mean, to give our listeners a little background, when you entered our family, which I think was about five years ago, you made predictions and understood things that nobody else could have known, you know, whether it was recognizing that my father had a dangerous jaywalking problem or telling me when I was going to meet Jack or letting my mother know that she had a movie inside her she had to make. I mean, you've shifted the course of every single one of our lives. And and I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you was like, you've had this incredible career so long, so many people have engaged with you. How have you dealt with, considering what a fighter you are, like the essential skepticism that so many people have about the things they can't see and they can't know? Well, you know, it is the unseen that really interests me in people in our own lives. I think it's my spirit that I'm Scorpio. I love to jump in the fire. I love the fight. I uh, It's been painful and I live under tremendous anxiety, but the freeing of the human spirit and the love I have for people and their story, I'm never bored by a story. I want to know every little detail about a person. I go in the nooks and crannies of their past, present, and future, and I it's painful sometimes. I After a reading, I will be in anguish. I will suffer, but it's just part of feeling. I I just never want to not feel everything. And it was only recently as, you know, I was taking care of Jackie, who was my life partner of 25 years who died, that um, I was standing on a platform on a train uh, station after I had taken her to Garrison, New York for a spiritual retreat. And I ran to the other side to catch the train to go back to New York. And we didn't realize it, so it was an hour wait in a snowstorm. But in that moment, I had the most incredible feeling that I never had before of who Terry Icuso was. And I embraced her and said, you are amazing. Who would do this? And it was such a gift of love. And I realized that all of the readings I did was just to love so many people, to feel them, get mad at them, suffer with them. And I'm also got to be so many people. In order to do a reading, I merge into who a person is and become them. And it was, there's no more fascinating journey. You mentioned your partner, Jackie, and you were, you know, out of the closet as a lesbian long before many people. And you came to New York both as a psychic and as, I mean, if you don't mind my saying, like a queer radical. And I wondered how those two things, the fight you were engaged in to end AIDS, to end oppression, to bring queerness to the forefront, how that intersected with your psychic abilities. I had always felt the love for women. Then came the 60s and 70s where we hardly ever used the word queer or homosexual. We just did everything. And any experience I've ever had sexually, emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, all turns up the volume on being psychic. You know, there's no boundaries in my life. I will I have done everything, tried everything. I just never had a child. But you had a lot of people who felt like they were your children. Oh, my God. Old Mother Hubbard lived in a shoe. I had so many children. I don't know what to do. (laughs) That's me. If you were to describe sort of the bedrock of your spiritual principle, how would you describe it? 
I believe the bedrock of the, my spiritual principle is that I do acknowledge that I am in this present moment in a body, a human being on the earth with other people like myself that I want to get to know. And my friends will tell you that I stop and talk to everybody, every dog, every animal, every person. I want to merge and feel them, the empathy, the sympathy, the compassion. Well, I'm so interested in why people are nasty, angry. So I'm in a human experience. What I do is a human experience. You know, we have these words, the paranormal, and there's so many words. Even I'm embarrassed almost saying I'm a psychic, a clairvoyant. I'm a human being that has this amazing brain ability, a spirituality that is on all flames, furnaces, full speed, 24 hours a day, always. And it's just so exciting. So I'm truly, truly alive. I can't imagine when I die where, out of the body where that's all going to go. And I've asked you this before during my own most existentially anxious moments, but is the idea of death something that scares you? No. No. I mean, I've seen so many of my friends and my beloved Jackie watched her suffer dying. So I'm not afraid of really exiting the body or where we're going. People ask me all the time what happens after death. And I have to tell you, I don't really know. I'm not sure. I've heard many versions all my life. Sometimes I think this is it, nothing. It's just gone. But mostly I think this thing I said, this thing that makes me me, that that furnace, that when it's released from the body is going to go somewhere. And sometimes I think it just goes into the great river of love, where is where artists and people who fall in love and healing all draws from. I'm going to go there. I want to go to that place. I want to follow you. Terry, you told me I was going to meet a guy who played the guitar, and you told me I was going to see him laughing through a glass window pane. And on our second date, when I went out to get money from the ATM and I was heading back, I waved at Jack, and he was laughing through a glass window pane. And I was like, God damn, Terry, she's always right. That's wonderful. I'm so happy. You know, hold on to each other, hold on to him. And, and love, love, love is the answer. And if you can find someone... Uh, through a window pane, grab on, hold on, and go through life together. It's the greatest joy, and it's such a gift, and you have that, and I saw that, and that's how I got to be in love, too. (laughs) That's a wonderful thing. I'm so happy. I love you, Terry. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, I love you. Thank you very much. Bye. That was the beautiful, radical, and inspiring Terry Ayacuzo. I hope she enjoys her retirement as much as we've enjoyed having her predicting our deepest spirit wishes. And if you want to really enjoy yourself, pick up a copy of her book, Small Mediums at Large. Is there a better title in the world? Okay, let's all hold hand seance style and get into today's stories. I'm ready to talk about penises and God. <laughs> That's Alna Baker, a writer, comedian, and former member of the Mormon Church. Just a quick note to listeners, you will hear giggling throughout the story. That's our producer, Jenna, whose poker face sucks the big one, but we love her for it. I was so bad at this. It's just like the whole time it's like... (laughs) There she is right now! She won't stop! (laughs) I had questioned Mormonism my whole life. Like, even as a little kid, 
uh, most Mormons are baptized at eight. Uh, so when you're baptized, you're uh, accountable for your sins. And prior to eight, you're not. And once you're eight, you are. And when I turned eight, I didn't get baptized. And about a month later, my parents like sat me down and they're like, why haven't you committed to baptism? And so I said, well, why not just get baptized at 70? Because then I could lead a fun life and then get baptized. And they were like, well, what do you mean by a fun life? And I was like, you know, I could just like do, do things. They're like, what exactly do you want to do? Like you're eight. I didn't even know. I didn't know about sex. I didn't know about alcohol. But I just had like my gut was like, let's, let's wait on this one. I ended up getting baptized, even though a part of me knew it would interfere with a fun life. I'm 27, and I decide that I don't know what life is like on the other side. And in my mind, the decision really was, I keep coming back to questioning it, but part of that is just because I have no idea what's out there. And I really bet that once I go out there and try all these things for the first time, it'll just help me understand why I've been told not to do them, and it'll make me more Mormon. So all I have to do is spend a year out in the world and I will for sure 100% finally recognize why I should be Mormon and love it. And really, for the first several months, I did absolutely nothing. So uh, it's like maybe four or five months in. A friend who knew about this set me up on a date with this guy. Um, we'll call him Ethan. And uh, Ethan had been uh, raised in a strict Orthodox Jewish community. And he was also a writer, and he had left this community in his mid-20s. And so uh, we're out at a restaurant. And at first, it was like this lovely, it was like a love letter to religion. He was telling me, like, as an Orthodox Jew, what drew him to his faith, why he loved it, why he stayed religious so long. And then I sort of shared my side of it. And then he asked about this break and, you know, why I was taking this break. And then he asked, uh, what I'd done yet? And he's like, well, have you tried drinking? And I was like, no. <laughs> uh, and then he said, have you, like, tried drugs? No. <laughs> and then he's like, well, what about sex? Have you had sex? Uh, and I said, no. Uh, honestly, I have no idea what to do with a penis. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just looked at me, like, like directly in the eyes and said, do you want me to show you? It was like, you know, zero to 60. And I said, <laughs> yes. And so we, we like settled our tab and within five minutes we had taken a cab and we were back at my apartment. <laughs> and it was like the way he treated it, it was like really clinical. Like it felt like this was a community service as a former Orthodox Jew that he was required to do. Like we sat on the couch, like the lights were still on. He, like, took his penis out, and he was, like, <laughs> here. Like, he just walked me through what a penis was, which no one had ever done before. I didn't really even know what a penis looked like. Like, I would go to art museums, and I had trained myself not to ever look down. And uh, so it just, like, lived in my brain like a weird blur. And uh, the first thing that I said, unintentionally, I just blurted out, it's so big. And he was like, wow, you're already good at this. And then uh, he started to show me how to uh, give a hand job. 
So as my hand is like bobbing up and down, I lean in and we kiss. And as we're kissing, I pull back and I look in his eyes and I just say, do you ever get over the guilt? In my hand, his penis stopped, like it started to go unhard. And I didn't know what was happening. So I was like, oh my God, what I did, did I hurt you? Are you hurt? Did it, is it, what's happening? And like within two minutes, like zipped up, like pat me on the shoulder and left. And then the next morning when I woke up, it was like the Mormon girl woke up with all the eternal consequences of this choice and everything in this future I had possibly impaired and also how wrong it is. And I lived in a a loft bed, so as like I climbed down each rung, it was like more and more and more and more Mormon thoughts. And when my feet hit the ground, I burst into tears and like fell to the floor, like in a heap, like crying with that sense of like the kind of grief when you've just found out someone dies, like that uncontrollable like pain. And so in this moment of like crying, I, uh, and this isn't even a Mormon thing, this is just (laughs) sort of crazy. We had been to the Garden of Gethsemane when I was a teenager, which is where Jesus bled and suffered for the sins of mankind. And um, when I was there, I'd, I like had like this spiritual experience of like really it anchoring my faith. And I had taken some of the dirt where I was like Jesus's blood, like bled here in this dirt. And so I'd taken this clump of dirt and saved it for at this point almost 10 years. And it was in a little vase in my living room. And so in the moment of feeling that excruciating pain and guilt, I went over to this a vase, and I decided to, I poured some of the dirt in my hand. Then I walked over to the garbage, and I was like, uh, Heavenly Father, I touched a penis. <laughs> I promise that I will never touch a penis again uh, until I'm married, and through the blood in this dirt that Jesus <laughs> bled into it. And I like rubbed my hands together, so there was like dirt all over my penis-touching hands, and I was like, through this dirt, uh, please um, forgive me of these sins. And then I like dropped the dirt in the garbage. And weirdly, it was like a magic dirt. Like it worked. I felt like I could go about my day. Like I'd done something wrong, but I didn't feel paralyzed by it. But the problem with sexual curiosity is that like, I I mean, I've been curious for 27 years. And like (laughs) next time you're with someone, you want to do what you did before, but like a little bit more because you have the confidence now of like, it's not going to totally fail. So like not two weeks later, where once there was Jesus dirt, there was like yet another dick in my hand. (laughs) I was like, and I would come home and be like, why? No, what was I thinking? And then I would pour more Jesus dirt and go over the garbage like I'm never touching like I every time I meant it too it was like I am never touching a penis again through this Jesus dirt blood and then a, like a week later I'd be like damn it and so I started running out of Jesus dirt and rationing it so just like a speckle like a little bit of oregano do you have any more Jesus dirt now I ran out of the dirt The things that I've learned about myself from having sex, positive and negative, are invaluable. Your own capacity for like pleasure and joy and uh, 
no inhibitions in a moment is like a beautiful and confidence-building thing where you get to feel like a like alive and like a spark of a thing. It was like I'd gone from pleasing God to like pleasing men. Like, well, what do men want me to do? And so it, it took me a while of like, well, where am I in all this? Yeah. I was a person who was curious, who asked questions, and there were no answers. And there are no answers because it's a manipulative religion. And I eventually stopped being manipulated by it. Thank you to Elna Baker for that story and for making our sweet Jenna giggle like a baby child. Elna's currently developing a project for IFC, so be on the lookout for that magic. Non-Muslims speculating about the lives of Muslim women, specifically their romantic experience, tend to really miss the mark pretty hard. It's not something I plan to do. Assumptions and stereotypes abound, ranging from silly to downright destructive. So let's turn it over to Uber blogger Nadia Hadid to give us the real scoop on what it's like to date well Muslim. Are we ready? Okay. Hi, my name is Nadia Hadid. I am British Pakistani Muslim and I write a blog called My Life as an Imposter about being small and loud and brown and in love. Here are my five tips for navigating the dating world as a modern Muslim woman. Number one, <laughs> it is all about the mamas. Talk to your mother. Take your mother into confidence. If you don't have the relationship with your mother where you can talk frankly to her about this kind of emotional stuff, choose another woman in your family that has gravitas, that has authority, that you can talk to about how you feel and what you want to do. I think mothers, particularly in Asian families, particularly in Muslim families, you know, the women kind of run the show. They just, they're in charge of everything and they're in charge of everyone and they can assuage the, uh, the anger of a confused father who doesn't necessarily understand why you want these things for your life. I guarantee it, you'll find comfort in your mother or a female figure. They will understand because they felt everything you're feeling too. Our way of dealing with things, my generation, was do what you want and just bring home the one you're going to marry and don't tell your parents anything in between. You know, there's only so many times you can be studying for a biology test with your friend before they realise you're lying. They know you're lying, we know we're lying, but it's this, this sort of complicit denial that everybody has because there's no frame of reference for this whatsoever. And I just grew tired of it. I didn't want to lead a double life, so I spoke to my mother and she wasn't amazingly happy with it in the beginning because she hadn't known anything else other than her own experience. You know, Muslim girls didn't go out and go, hey, this is my boyfriend, he's got blue hair, is that cool? Oh, and he has nipple piercings. You know, it's difficult. <laughs> but we together reached an equilibrium where now I feel I can tell her anything. My second tip would be be honest about sex and expectations around sex. Be comfortable in your own skin. There are certain things that you may require or need or certain things you will and won't do because of your religious beliefs that 
I don't think should preclude you from dating. Say sex before marriage. If you don't want to have sex before marriage, you can still date somebody. Just let them know that they aren't going to get any. You have to be fair. You have to be realistic because ultimately in Western culture, there is an expectation of sex when you date somebody. And if you are the one changing the pace, then I feel the onus is on you to very politely just voice your boundaries. You've got to say what you will and won't do. People in my sort of generation, we didn't want to be different. We didn't want to have to say, oh yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to go out with you, Billy, but nothing's going to happen in my pants ever because I'm terrified of that and I don't want to do it till I'm married. I'm not saying put it on your dating profile or sit down at a date like I did in my 20s going, I'm not going to sleep with you, you know. Hi, I'm Nadia. That was fine and it was funny and the person liked it, but you don't always have to approach things in that way. However, don't hide it either. Be unabashed about what you believe in, but don't be arrogant about it and don't judge other people for having a different opinion to yours. There's no shame in not wanting to have sex. And there's no shame in wanting to have sex. Tip number three is accept the losses. You can't win all the time in life. You particularly cannot win at dating when you don't want to have sex with somebody. You have to accept that for all the things that you believe and all the wonderful reasons you believe them, other people believe something completely converse to you and they have just as valid reasons for believing them. You can't be compatible with everybody. It's scientifically impossible. Number four, when you are dating outside of your religion. For me, my husband is Jewish, I'm Muslim, and we had a fantastic wedding. Both of our families loved each other. We call ourselves Muish people. The reason interfaith marriage works and when it does work is because neither party is really willing to give up who they are and where they come from. I think when you are okay with claiming both, it can be incredibly successful. But it has to start with you. In any union that you want to be in, in any relationship or any couple that you want to be in, being able to claim yourself and who you are first will help you to claim both, even in a Jewish-Muslim marriage. Uh, Number five, oh, fuck everyone else. I'm sorry, it's just... It really does not matter. In every area of life, people are going to disagree with something that you're doing. Particularly in Asian culture, particularly in Pakistani culture, there's always somebody going, you didn't do that right. Or you should be doing that differently. Oh, your daughter does that? Really interesting. Oh, fuck everybody else. Just no one matters. No one's opinion about you and what you want for your own life matters. You know, like I said before, I'm in an interfaith relationship, an interfaith marriage. I'm pretty sure people had a lot of opinions about that. I don't give a shit. You can't make everybody happy and there are douchebags everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. So why give them credence? It just, you know, and also, just as a side note, the best defense and the best revenge for somebody judging how you live your life is indifference and happiness. The day you realize that someone else's opinion of you is entirely their business, you are free. Thank you to Nadia Hadid for those handy tips and tricks. You can read more from Nadia at www.mylifeisanimposter.com. I cannot believe that I never got that URL.
I grew up with a father who literally painted huge cartoon penises for an actual working job. He did it from home, but also from his imagination, so luckily we were never around real nude models. My childhood self couldn't have handled that, and neither could my teenage self when I was kicked out of a figure drawing class for making too many graphic jokes. Though, the nude male model did rest his penis on a stool. I saw it. I swear I saw it. Why does nobody believe me? Anyway, Eliana Sagarin is a writer and actor, but she ain't much of an artist. Like, I think people look at what I draw, and they're like, oh, a seven-year-old serial killer drew that. Like, not even, not even bad, but like disturbing. So, Eliana decided to try out being on the other side of the process as a nude model, or life model, as they say in the biz. Oh, and here's one last important bit of info about Eliana. Her dad is a reform rabbi and her mom is a Jewish educator. Everything leading up to it was like really awful, really anxiety producing. But the second I disrobe, I just like, you're naked. Like you can't get any more naked. It was a like Saturday afternoon and we took the train all the way to the edge of the city, like into the suburbs. And we got there and there were a bunch of people milling about. There was probably like 15, 20 models. People had, there was like a changing room where people were getting naked and putting on robes. And we spent the first hour or so setting poses because once the artists arrived, we would, you know, just be, be hitting poses. We did poses based on paintings. So the first one, the first one was not based on a painting. It was simply with like a ballet bar for ballet class. That was going to be, you know, our opening warm up pose, 15 minutes just around the bar. We set a half hour pose based on the painting, The Raft of the Medusa, which if you haven't seen it, it's just like a lot of people like drowning and dying off of a boat, you know, perfect for naked people um (laughs) and then the last the grand finale of the of the event was going to be an hour-long pose based on the last supper by leonardo da vinci perhaps you've heard of it and so we're setting these poses we're doing whatever it gets time for us to set the last supper lucy or esther she has the a printed out version of the painting and she kind of looks at me and she goes eliana I think you're going to be Jesus. <laughs> I'm like, uh, for sure. That is a lot of pressure. This is the, I'm the starring role in the Christmas pageant. I never knew I would be a part of. And this is going to be an hour long pose. An hour is a really long time. I was like sitting in the center with like my hands on either side and my hair was like essentially like covering my boobies I had people on either side of me as my apostles. You know, I just kind of was looking forward for an hour. There were plaques mounted on the walls of all these like various achievements that this community, this little community center had done. And I was just staring at them, reading them, trying to stay still, knowing that I was like the focal point of this painting. I told my mom and she was super supportive. And I go... Yeah, mom, I don't know. Do you think I should tell dad? And she goes, Eliana, how do you think dad paid for grad school? And I was, I just felt like this beautiful moment of like singularity being like, I'm exactly where I need to be. I'm exactly who I need to be. And I'm going to get naked. (laughs) 
That was a fully clothed Eliana Sagarin with her own naked tribute to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so before we get some grade A advice from Tessa Thompson, I have a quick question for Carol Dunham. Do you think you'll ever um, uh, do acid or mushrooms again? I don't know. <laughs> How would I know that? <laughs> I don't know. You might have a plan that I don't know about. You may be planning a trip. No, I don't have any plans. Honestly, probably not. Lived life is too stressful and jangly and already highly stimulating. And I don't seem to have any shortage of wacky ideas right now. So I don't feel like there's there, there's a door screaming, you know, Mr. Dunham, come through this door. Yeah. I kind of feel like I went through the door. And I'm now I'm, you know, I have to live my life, do my work, be with the people I want to be with. Yep, that's my father. He's gotten a little of his unorthodox spiritual perspective from the use of psychedelic drugs. Hear about it all in our Religion and Spirituality bonus episode out in a few days. Now let's find out what beautiful, intelligent, godly advice Tessa Thompson has for us this week. Here's our listener's question. Brought up semi-Lutheran, now struggling to find my spirituality, where do I find God if I can't even hear the name without feeling uncomfortable? I can totally relate to that. I was raised sort of without religion. On one hand, by my mother, who was really open and went through periods where she was, you know, interested in Buddhism, for example. And then my father, on the other hand, who was raised really Catholic, was an altar boy, and I think as he became an adult, decided that he was an atheist. And so when I was with my father, for example, if we'd be out at a dinner party and people wanted to say grace, I could literally feel everything in him clench up. Just the mention of God made him not just uncomfortable, but I don't think uncomfortable at all. Instead, I think he just decided that people that believed in God or were faith-based were stupid. (laughs) So I guess it's just something that is and this sounds probably really cliche and trite, but personal to you. And I think what I've heard from people that really feel connected to God or to the universe or to Mother Gaia or whatever you want to call it, the thing that they seem to always say is you silence all voices, including your own in a way, and find a really quiet space where you can invite in wisdom that is bigger than yourself. So I would say that's the thing that you kind of have to do when you're trying to figure out sort of how you feel, if that makes sense, coming from someone that is continually trying. Thank you, Tessa. If there's one woman I'd build a Helga-inspired bubblegum shrine to, it'd be you. Our last story comes from Leela Day. As a kid, I only ever attended Protestant church with my grandma, and let's just say that music didn't make you want to swing your hips. It more like made you want to crawl into a shallow grave and bury yourself? But at black church, the music can have a very different effect, and has been known to inspire something called praise dancing. Dancers stand next to the pulpit and feel every word of a song like it's traveling through their entire body, while church members look on. Many black churches across the U.S. have praise dance in their services. It's tightly choreographed, and every movement has meaning. Like a Richard Simmons workout video, you know? One. Two. 
Three, we are practicing kicks. Four, like ballerinas do. Five, and we have to do 10 each for each leg. Six, seven, a praise dancer is like a dancer who praises God. Yeah. I know I praise the Lord. And then breakthrough. My name is Jasmine Randolph. And my name is Maya Rollerson. Like hi, you can go like hi. Like trying to send out a message in sign language pretty much. They're looking through God through us. And we're praise dancing. <clears throat> I give myself away so you can use me. When I'm dancing during practices, I'm very good, but sometimes I get a little nervous when I'm in front of a big crowd. I give myself away. I love that, like, it expresses yourself and that you can, like, be free. Take my heart, take my life as a living sacrifice. I can do this. I'm, my whole dance is for you. I'm sending a message to you. All my dreams, all my plans, Lord, I place them in your hands. When I'm dancing, I think about that everybody is pretty much like little angels and God's, and God's the main key. And I'm like just standing there dancing for God in front of all the angels. I give myself away so you can use me. Glory to God. Every gift she has, she got everything I asked for, I got and more. I'm so thankful. Mm-hmm. That's my baby. Mm-hmm. I even asked God for the dimples. Smile, honey. <laughs> Be specific, ladies. <laughs> I'm the mother of Maya Rollerson, and I'm Monica Walker Rollerson. Ooh, I would get a switch if I popped my fingers in church or did any kind of, no, we definitely didn't dance. We could clap a little bit, (laughs) but no wiggling, no snapping, and certainly not what they do. I'm glad they have been set free. God is love, and I I think it's great. They have something they can do pain and really feel pain, put your shoulder into pain. We didn't dance in church. We barely clapped in church. And that is something new also. My name is Nettie Powell. I guess in the last 20 years they've been doing it, but it just not something that that's in my head, just clapping. And so dancing certainly wasn't one of the things that I was thinking that should be going on. And then do it hard. So, um, some like elderly people, they 
when an upbeat song comes on, like some of them have like this face that they make. Yeah. I think they're thinking like they're really good and that they want to praise the Lord. And all I can say is, and this is precious in sign language, so precious Lord. Like praise dancing is kind of flowy like ballet and like spiritual kind of slow. A lot of people confuse praise dancing with um, miming. My name is Clanisha. I'm 17. I dance at Jerusalem Baptist Church. And it can be like long arm movements and like hand gestures and kicks and spins and turns and all types of movements. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for another day in your presence. Lord, we ask that this dance is in your name, in your name only. We pray for the people that are here. Like like our teacher said, we're not just dancing because for no reason. We're trying to give out a message to God. My name is Gregory Roy. I'm the guardian of Jasmine Randolph. Um, a nine-year-old that thinks she's about 25. <laughs> Jesus loves the little children of the world. She is so unorthodox and goofy and has no rhythm that I didn't believe she would ever pick it up, but uh, she's coming along nicely. I was wondering if it's okay, like if we can all do it in different directions. So y'all have um, to It's kind of exciting to be part of a new movement and um, it inspire people to um, to start dancing in the church. That's why I'm safe, safe in his arms. Amen. All right, yes. Amen. Thanks to Leela Day for that quite literally moving story. As an adult, I've come to resemble my mother more than I might have hoped in certain regards. There's nobody I won't let lay a healing hand on my body, no crystal I won't tote in my purse, no geranium oil I won't put in my underwear. I cling to the concept of radical healing like so many people cling to a worn copy of the Bible. But recently, I've had a remarkable experience. On the suggestion of one very wise healer, I've been in communication with a rabbi. The fatigue and hopelessness that modern life so often encourages could be helped, he thought, by the practice of Shabbat. And so this girl, the one who dropped out of Hebrew school because she didn't get the role of Queen Esther in the play, is starting a relationship with a reform rabbi who will help me understand the basis of this custom how it could relate to a modern girl covered in meaningless tats, and how it could connect me to those I have lost, including my grandmother Dorothy, for whom Judaism was a beautiful given for her entire 96 years. When she died four months ago, we did as good Jews do and dropped handfuls of dirt on her child-sized coffin. Under my mother's watchful eye, I also snuck a crystal in there.
This podcast was produced by Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. Specifically, it was made by a big gang of nasty women, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Liz Watson, Emily Becker, Barry Finkel, and Gabrielle Lewis. Those bitches. Special thanks to Henry Malofsky, Max Linsky, Ben Cooley, Jess Gross, and all of our moms. Our music is by Andrew Dost. He's attractive, but in that way that, like, for a second, you're like, I'm not sure. Then you're like, oh, my God, he's so beautiful. Thanks, as always, to MailChimp for sponsoring the show. Remember, this episode was sponsored by Search Party, the comedy series on TBS, and you can watch it on TBS and TBS On Demand. You should be very thankful to them for bringing you this podcast. All right, we'll be back next week. That's all for now, folks.